Ranieri and Co. This episode contains language that may be offensive to some listeners. The international subversives were edgier because they were willing to get into more U.S. military sites in particular. The Melbourne hacking scene was ramping up to a new level of sophistication. And they were willing to go deeper, stay longer, have more permanence, or what's called today persistence in systems. So their persistence would run months or longer. An unusual fugue of hacking, freaking, politics and radicalism. Let's just hope it works. It still had that familiar playfulness about it in the early 1990s, but it's fair to say that it was now more than just curious. There was a political edge. And as we heard last episode, this new group were watching closely what happened to the proto-hackers in the realm. If anything, watching what happened in court encouraged the international subversives rather than deterred them. One of its members, Trax, described his hacking colleagues like this. They were hackers on a major scale, on a huge scale, something never achieved before. And they weren't afraid to go in and grasp power rather than just observe. And I don't mean use that power. I don't mean do things like break stuff rather than breaking in and watching things and gaining power from knowledge. It's holding the power in your hand of actually controlling that system um, and, and potentially even tinkering at the edges a little bit to see you know, whether that power would work, um, but without actually causing any damage. According to the book Sulek Dreyfus wrote with Julian Assange, the international subversives were prolific. They primarily targeted America's military industrial complex, including, but not limited to, NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center, the Pentagon, the Naval Surface Warfare Center in Virginia, Lockheed Martin's Tactical Aircraft Systems Air Force plant in Texas, corporations like Motorola Inc. and Bell Communications, and large international telecommunications companies. The idea of taking over telephone systems of a company with 40 or 50,000 employees, that's kind of fairly far-ranging power. You know, being able to completely divert Brazil to Belgium. And then the military hacks, the Milnet stuff, that was, that was pretty impressive. Loneliness is indicative of modern society. It affects everyone at some point. It's part of the human condition. Thanks to Medibank, We Are Lonely is a podcast that seeks to demystify loneliness. Follow the journey of four diverse 20-somethings on their search for connection. Young Australians have never been more lonely, yet loneliness is rarely discussed and often misunderstood. Season two of the We Are Lonely podcast is part of Medibank's 10-year commitment to reduce chronic loneliness in Australia. We Are Lonely is available wherever you listen to your podcasts. Search for We Are Lonely and listen today. This is Motherlode, an original Rainier & Co. production. I'm Greg Muller. I've been researching the ins and outs of Melbourne's early hacking scene and tracking down key players from around the world. Loading episode 5, International Subversives. 
In July 1991, computer hacker Mendax, who we now know to be Julian Assange, started an online magazine. The court was also told the men published a hacker's manual called International Subversive on a computer bulletin board. It began with a quote from Spanish poet Juan Ramón Jiménez. If they give you ruled paper, write the other way. Mendax was the editor and main contributor and wrote under the alias Cathonicavi, meaning Gods of the Underworld. There were 26 chapters in all with cryptic and colourful titles like Hack of the Month, US Military Dial-Ups, Rasputin Sprinter, Shuttle NASA Communication Frequencies. The articles basically taught hacking techniques, gave tips, codes, phone prefixes and warnings. Detailed instructions on grabbing password files and manipulating phone systems. It had a circulation of just three. And these three Melbourne guys became known as the International Subversives. Mendax and Trax met on a bulletin board called Electric Dreams. They got to know Prime Suspect on another one called Megaworks. The first chapter of the self-published magazine is an editorial. Welcome to Volume 1, Issue 1 of International Subversive. These are the words of Mendax. We've used an actor to read them. An unusual fugue of hacking, freaking, politics and radicalism. Let's just hope it works. Why am I a hacker? Because it is a distraction. A distraction from death and sometimes a welcome distraction from life. It's one of my more pleasant occupations. Hacking, freaking is mind over matter. We can do so much because we have the skill. With no status, money, class or influence and only our minds, we can control so much. We have access to so much information. Yeah, I'm an information junkie. We are fucking a fucked system before it fucks us. This is good. It's fascinating reading, full of technical data. When I first started writing International Subversive, I did not intend on making it elitist. But because of the incriminating material contained within and the eagerness of the AFP to bust my ass, I am forced to do so. Issue 1 has a sum readership of 3. Me, Prime Suspect, Tracks. This from the chapter Hack of the Month. A cluster of four or so large DEC VMS machines, the central host being VAX7. VAX7 seems to have a large and extremely varied user population, ranging from the Commonwealth Bank, Elders Corporate, Boyne Smelters Limited. There's the loads of personality. Being alive seems to be just as I imagined it would. It swings from feeling fucked to feeling fucking good. The US gets a fair bit of attention. The US military always were one of the more subhuman groups on the planet. And there's a call out for US military telephone system numbering. If anyone has a more comprehensive list, I would be glad to hear from you. Followed by what claims to be a list of phone prefixes for US military sites around the world. DSN 314226XXXX. There are pages and pages of prefixes, nodes, area codes, outdial hosts, hundreds of them, including Timnet network codes. Timnet was an international communications network which connected thousands of large companies, research institutions and government agencies, as well as connecting to various public networks. There were instructions on how to get your Timnet username validated. Call Linda on 800-544-2233. And then instructions describing what to do with it once it was validated. This network became redundant once the public internet arrived. There were hacking tips and warnings too. The file you see is actually not what it appears to be. It is the output of a little program I installed into the logout sequence. 
In future, I advise you to be very careful of all the Melbourne educational sites. In the final chapter, Assange did provide some relief from technical data and politics. I found this in someone's directory, along with some other information on NASA. It's called Sex in Space. I don't know exactly where this guy obtained it from. However, I've included it in the hopes that it will lighten up an otherwise very dry publication. It goes into excruciating, sometimes hilarious detail. Satisfactory marital relations are within the realm of possibility in zero-g. It's an instruction manual on how to have sex in zero gravity. An elastic belt around the waist of the two partners. The partners faced each other in the standard missionary posture. An elastic belt binding the thighs of the female to the waist of the male. The female's buttocks were against the male's groin, while her knees straddled his chest. In fact, it was more rewarding than analogous postures used in a gravitational field. We recognize that any attempt by NASA to recommend approaches to marital relationships will be politically risky. Turns out, this document is a hoax. We all get sucked in by the internet, sometimes even the hackers. Kathonika V signs off. This is the end, my friend. See you next edition. Be careful and good luck. In the early 90s, the Australian Federal Police spent two years tracking the international subversives. Their investigation was codenamed Operation Weather. One thing the international subversives became notorious for was their ability to not only crack password files, but also to insert password cracking programs into networks. A password file contains the account name, the encrypted password and the degree of access. Hacking programs were written to decode these password files. In his police interview, Prime Suspect explained how these work. The password cracking program attempts to guess the encrypted passwords by going through each word in the dictionary, encrypting it according to the data encryption standard. We heard a lot about DES, the data encryption standard, last episode. It was the file used for cracking passwords, which was so sought after and obtained by the realm. Fucking hell, I want Desib real bad. And then comparing it to each of the passwords in the passwords file. If the two encrypted words match, then the password will have been guessed. The success for using this method was dependent on users having dumb passwords. That is, words from the dictionary. Now, mix this with a program Mendax wrote called TFTP, or Trivial Files Transfer Program. It was clever, and it worked in two parts. Firstly, it simply requests password files from a network. This part is basically a hit-or-miss affair and worked on about 10% of sites with lax security. Secondly, it attempted to guess the passwords by using a password cracking program. In essence, its aim was to grab password files from nominated computers. This was their way in to control computer systems. And according to police, the TFTP program targeted American computer sites which were either military, commercial, educational or government-based. It was very successful. There was a description of how it operates in Mendax's magazine. You can be assured it will work on at least one computer at a large site. What should happen is that the TFTP server should keep deviants away from the system password file and Unpatch Systems will let you download any world-readable file, provided you know its path name. I've been looking through both the magazine and the court documents, and it's clear they were experimenting, working things out one hack at a time, and then sharing everything. Take this example. One night, Mendax, aka Julian Assange, was playing around in the telecom phone exchange in Melbourne. 
he got into a company called Nortel, a Canadian-owned telecommunications company with a worldwide network. Using his TFT program, police alleged that Mendax managed to get more than 1,000 password files and he was able to crack around 8,000 accounts from these password files. If you could control Nortel, you could control telephone systems around the world, including Melbourne. Mendax then figured out a way to select a range of phone numbers. He chose 1,000 numbers with the prefix 634, which he thought might be all the phones in the Queen Street building in Melbourne's CBD. But he needed a command to try, to see if it worked. So, he typed in ring. They all rang. Mendax accidentally set off a thousand phones all at once at 7am in this Melbourne high-rise office building. He quickly got out. Mendax was later charged for hacking into Nortel, and notably a network called Corwin. This served as a gateway to the internet. Police alleged that Assange had accessed around 1,400 Corwin machines and that he had root access to more than 100 computers. There's that familiar mischievousness coming through too. One night, a system admin from Nortel was tracking Mendax's movements through the system when a message popped up on his screen. I have finally become sentient. I have taken control. It's been nice playing with your system. We didn't do any damage and we even improved a few things. Please don't call the Australian Federal Police. The statement of facts later presented to the court claimed the cost to Nortel of these hacks was about $160,000. That's about $320,000 in today's money. It was this hack into Nortel which first caught the attention of police. This, in turn, prompted the computer crime section of the AFP to launch Operation Weather. Another target was a computer called Minerva. This computer was part of the Australian National Universities Network. Minerva was also connected to the CM2 supercomputer, which Assange also later admitted to hacking into. These computers were collectively known as the ARP machines, which stands for the Automated Reasoning Project, a project designed to develop artificial intelligence in the early 90s. The data on the ARP machines included financial records, research data and commercial and confidence information. They also held a large amount of security mail, emails between system administrators discussing bugs in their systems, how to fix them and how to deal with hackers generally. And it was operated by the OTC, the government-owned Overseas Telecommunications Commission. But most of the accounts on Minerva were held by corporations. Minerva was attractive for two reasons. It was instant credibility in the hacker scene, indeed Electron spent some time in this computer too, and secondly, you could get in with a free call. A really neat way that it leveled the playing field is that the internet, (laughs) that saying no one knows you're a dog on the internet. Well, no one knows you're just like one guy in a bedroom hacking. You're kind of a powerless second-year university student with some technical skills and a second-hand computer and a modem, you know, and here you are inside the bowels of one of the largest telcos in the world or, or whatever. The Minerva hack is interesting for another reason too. It shows hacking wasn't all about password cracking programs and clever code. Sometimes there was a human touch, such as calling up someone inside the company, pretending to be the guy from computer services or whatever, and then convincing them to hand over passwords. Hackers call this social engineering. Others would describe it as muckraking. And Mendax was good at it. 
He even made a cassette, which he played in the background to make it sound like he was calling from a busy office. Mendax, calling himself John Keller, a fictitious operator from OTC Minerva in Sydney, rang an employee in Perth, on the other side of the country. Actually calling from Melbourne, Mendax explained there'd been a system crash and he needed to check all contact details because they may have been damaged. And then, to be sure, of course he had to confirm the guy's username and password, which the employee dutifully handed over, keen to do everything the computer help guy asked for. It worked. Mendax was in. Assange then stored the stolen data on Minerva, which was where Prime Suspect later found the 22 megabytes of data. Prime Suspect then deleted it and left a message on the machine. Don't try and play hero hacker catcher. We mean no harm in our actions, as you most probably would have noticed from watching what we've been up to. All we wish is to be left alone from various law enforcement agencies you may have called. A, you won't catch us or hope to stop us, and B, if it's found you've been corresponding with these agencies, we will return with vengeance. You or any other sysadmin can never hope to lock us out of your machines, and in doing so, you only serve to irritate and inconvenience us. Just remember, we will return. And if you do make us angry, you will feel our anger. He signed off with... Festering hatred. The message was in the prosecution documents presented to the court and attributed to Prime Suspect. However, I should note that Prime Suspect never actually admitted to leaving this message. Another hack the international subversives became renowned for was Milnet, the US military network. It was the central theme in the 2012 telemovie Underground. One scene had Prime Suspect telling Assange... US military network, Milnet. First in wind. Okay, but here are the rules. Rules? We break rules. We only look. Take us still nothing, leave no traces. Where is the fun in that? It's ringing. The movie starred Rachel Griffiths as Julian Assange's mum and Anthony LaPaglia as Detective Roberts, a character clearly based on Detective Sergeant Ken Day. The real Ken Day, who headed up Operation Weather, got in touch with a journalist at Melbourne's The Age newspaper who'd reviewed the film. Ken told the reporter that, and I quote, This movie was promoted as being a true story. Clearly it's not. He went on to claim that Assange was not prosecuted for breaking into any Milnet system that contained information on military targets, as there was no evidence that it occurred. And we had a lot of evidence. The phone call led to a follow-up article on October 9, 2012, with the headline, Police Officer Slams TV Portrayal of Assange. In 2010, Julian Assange told the Australian Current Affairs program Dateline that he indeed controlled Milnet. Yeah, I mean, we had a, a back door in um, the US Military Security Coordination Centre. <laughs> this is the peak security, for controlling the security of Milnet, the US military uh, internet. Yeah. Um, we had total control over this for two years. Sulet Dreyfus has a credit as a writer on the underground movie, and she stands by the claim. My recollection is that they told me they did get in. Just because the AFP didn't get access to what they were doing in this regard doesn't mean they weren't doing it. Who knows? 
the prosecution documents that we saw and the sentencing remarks for Assange didn't mention Milnet at all. The ambiguity may well be explained by the very elusive nature of the international subversives. But again, their overriding philosophy is don't damage stuff. And also, it's a smart philosophy in terms of you can hold power without exercising it because the minute you exercise it, the access is going to go away. So it's, it's also a longevity game in that regard. Another thing I learned from speaking to AFP officers from the time was that they decided not to participate in Sulet Dreyfus's and Julian Assange's book. They didn't want to be part of something which was, as they said, pro-hacker. It's important to understand the role universities played in these early days of computer hacking and why they were a target. Prime Suspect and Mendax got into the Goanna, Emu and Yulara machines. These machines were used to store students' research, coursework and exam results at the Royal Melbourne Institute of Technology, or RMIT. And the Romeo and Juliet machines at Australia National University, which were also linked to the supercomputer CM2. These computers were gateways to the internet and also places to temporarily store data they got from other computers. Jeff Houston was network manager at Canberra's ANU back then and remembers being hacked by Assange. <laughs> he did. <laughs> um, yes, this was a, a, a group down in Melbourne that had been wandering around the internet. Normally what they did was collect a bunch of useful software and run the scripts against things that answered. And so once they got onto an internet host, they'd then wander around and play scripts against other hosts to see if those hosts had a weak point, to see if a particular account was still set up with a default password and allowed you to get what we call a shell prompt. Yahoo! And even better, allowed you to then become the root user, the super user. You know, double Yahoo! I'm pretty sure Julian, because he seemed to be quite adept at breaking in on, on Spark stations at the time, you know, had a set of tools that unlocked Spark workstations, which, you know, he dutifully played against my machine, and lo and behold, bang, wallop, smash, my machine said open. Yeah, gee, thanks. So, yeah, um, I hosted Julian for a small amount of time. Well, hopefully a small amount of time. <laughs> the third member of the International Subversives, Tracks, sometimes known as Train Tracks, was an expert freaker, and from all accounts, a pretty good one. Freaking is the manipulation of telecommunication systems, hacking into phones, getting free phone calls, redirecting lines, that kind of stuff. Trax even wrote a manual, which was later seized by police, called Australian Freakers Manual, Volumes 1-7. to It's extensive and so full of information that he became too scared to give it to anyone. But ultimately, he shared it with just the other two international subversives. The manual begins like this. This, I hope, will be the be-all and end-all of Australian freaking files. I started learning how to freak about a year ago and have never looked back. I wrote a comms program which hacked out a system in three minutes. I then decided to write a phone sprinter to help me scan. I will try to cover as much as I can on freaking in Australia. He wrote a second edition which was published in International Subversive. Advanced Freaker's Guide, how to do whatever you want on a telephone network. It was very detailed with seven chapters. Chapter one, frequency table. Chapter two, CCITT5 routing table. Chapter 3, MFC signalling table. You get the sense Trax was proud of his skills and generous too. 
He wrote another file called TraxBov7, which was another guide to freaking. This method allows you to dial in anywhere in the world. The number is not logged, so it can't be traced. Now keen to share his skills, Trax claims to have individually tutored Prime Suspect, Mendax, and a couple of other hackers by the name of Constructor and Soderbloom. There was one other person, but this name had been redacted from the files we got from one of our Freedom of Information requests. Trax told police... Constructor went and, just after I told him not to tell anyone, he went and just told everyone and claimed it to be his method. When asked by police why he had disseminated the information, Trax replied with disarming honesty. Uh, to show that I was capable of doing what I was doing, to sort of like big note myself basically. Trax also told police in a lengthy interview about his motivation. The joy of breaching the security of a computer system and of gaining a reputation. And that he had never been paid to hack computers. Trax found a file which listed signalling tones on a bulletin board discussion. These are the sounds we're all familiar with, periodic tones which represent some condition on the line such as an engaged tone, dial tone, ringing tone, etc. He then wrote a program to generate these tones. The next step was to scan the telephone exchange for disconnected phone numbers. He knew when he'd found one because there'd be a sound like two short heartbeats and then silence. He would then play his generated tones and drop into the disconnected telephone number. From there, Trax could dial up a computer and it couldn't be traced back to him. Pretty clever, hey? Trax used this to make regular international phone calls. His freaking skills were no doubt legendary in hacker circles, but in Trax's eyes, Mendax and Prime Suspect were way out in front. He told police... There were hackers on a major scale, on a huge scale, something never achieved before. And this started to worry him capable of anything and that they could cause a lot of damage they were getting in too deep and their activities made him anxious about his involvement in computer hacking like the investigation into the realm the australian federal police only put one phone tap in place to hunt the international subversives last time it was phoenix this time it was prime suspect for the month of october 1991 And like Phoenix, the tap could intercept both voice and computer transmissions. And just like the Realm hackers, Prime Suspect told police that The primary motivation was to further my interest and knowledge in computers. He was never offered, nor received, any money, and he was a self-confessed addict. Computer hacking would be very difficult to give up. It's the main focus of my life at the time. Prime Suspect hacked into two computers called Jats and Cruscott, and as an aside, Who came up with these computer names? Well, they love the jats. If you're from Australia, you'll know these were also two popular biscuits made by Arnott's. I made them myself. Jats, the great entertainer, now in cracked pepper. These two computers were used to maintain the operation of the Australian Academic Research Network, better known as AARNet. AARNet also linked this national network to the worldwide network called the Internet. It was an Australian-wide network of 58,000 computer systems used to communicate data across research institutions, namely universities and the CSIRO, Australia's lead science organisation. Around 300,000 people were using it. In Jatson Cruscott, Prime Suspect uncovered little-known facts about computer security weaknesses. Pretty handy stuff for a hacker. 
Amazingly, he also found security mail discussing their own hacking activities, where they were happening, and what the AFP were doing about it. International subversives were watching the police, and this information allowed them to avoid sites which they knew were being monitored. Court documents showed Mendax also got into JATS in early October 1991, and accessed details of police investigations into hacking in Australia and overseas, and, true to form, Assange shared this information to warn other hackers. The court was told the men even tampered with the police investigation into hacking at the ANU. Police claim the men managed to gain access and delete material relevant to their inquiries. Prime Suspect's phone tap was a rich source for the police. They were planning to intercept Mendax and Trax's phones next, but circumstances got in the way. Trax received a death threat from another hacker, we don't know who, and reported this to the Victorian police. But during that conversation, he inadvertently spilled the beans on his own hacking. The Victorian police then handed this information over to the Federal Police and a few days later, they were all raided on the 29th of October. Prime Suspect's house was in an exclusive suburb about 15 kilometres east of Melbourne. Large brick homes and leafy streets. Pretty quiet, until a bunch of AFP officers came knocking one night. He wasn't home and his mother had no idea why they were knocking on her door. Prime Suspect was at a nearby end-of-term party. So that's where the police went to pick him up. When police went through Prime Suspect's bedroom, they seized his Apple computer and found newspaper clippings about the realm, Phoenix, Electron and Nom, and Operation Dabble. In Mendax's room, they found disks full of password files, cracked passwords, modem numbers, and no doubt surprisingly for them, details of their own investigation. There was no shortage of evidence, although it took three more years for charges to be laid, in July 1994. In May the following year, Prime Suspect signed a confession and also gave evidence against Trax and Mendax. All three eventually pleaded guilty, so there were no trials. Julian Assange was the last to hold out. But when presented with the police evidence, especially the information provided by Prime Suspect, he had little choice. It was all over bar the sentencing. Prime Suspect pleaded guilty to 25 offences and was the first to be sentenced on 21st of July 1995 by Judge Lewis. I think it appropriate he be released upon his own undertaking that he will be of good behaviour for a period of three years and that he'll make reparation in that he will pay to the Australian National University the sum of $2,100. And he lost his now outdated Apple computer too. Prime Suspect then signed the bond. I suggest you get a copy of that, put it in a frame and put it on your wall to remind you to be a good boy for the next three years. Otherwise you'll be in terrible trouble. You understand that, don't you? Yes. Yes. See if you can get your life together now and go on from there. I can only imagine how that somewhat condescending remark from the bench went down with the talented 21-year-old. But it seemed to have worked. Prime suspect never returned. Trax was next on the 20th of September 1995, in front of Judge Kim. You were, in effect, the junior offender of the three of you. In other words, your hacking was of significantly less extent than those others. 
You have been described aptly as a look-see computer hacker. And again... No damage or interference was caused by you to any of those computer systems which you unlawfully accessed. Trax copped a similar sentence to Prime Suspect, a $500 three-year good behaviour bond, but with one important difference. I do not propose that a conviction be recorded against you. Despite the light sentence, Judge Kim went on. Let me make this perfectly clear to you. I don't intend in any way to diminish or treat lightly the gravity of the offences committed by you. The purpose of that order is to allow you a period of time to prove, in effect, that you will be of good behaviour. Julian Assange allegedly accessed computer systems around the world through weak links in the internet system. Prosecutor Jeff Chettle said Assange had developed a program to collect passwords and disencode them to access computers. He said Assange could then gain what's called root access, meaning the whole computer opened up to him and he could walk around like God Almighty. Julian Paul Assange, you have pleaded guilty to 24 counts of offences against the Crimes Act of the Commonwealth and they involve the accessing of information and insertion of information into computers and associated offences. More than a year later, it was Julian Assange's turn. The offences that you committed were, I think, quite serious. Judge Ross delivered the sentence on the 5th of December, 1996. The information that you gained and the interference that you caused to various of the computer networks that you accessed did not produce any personal gain. There's no evidence that anything other than your interest in the computer, your desire to access this material to empower you, was the stimulus to behave as you did, and to that extent, it reflects on your criminality. Ross clearly had a respect for Assange, albeit a begrudging one. The submission that you're a highly intelligent individual seems to be well-founded. I suspect it's only highly intelligent individuals who can do what you did. He went through a long list of mitigating factors, including Assange's transient life growing up. He went to 37 schools around the country before settling in Melbourne, and good prospects for rehabilitation. And then, Judge Ross warned... If you come back again, those considerations will not apply. But if you are the highly intelligent individual about which has been spoken from the bar table, it's unlikely you will come back. It's weird to read this now, in 2022, with Assange fighting extradition to the US where he faces a 175-year sentence. I doubt the judge saw that coming. If the disposition embraces all of the counts, that is a sufficient basis for the recognizance release order. Ross imposed something like a suspended sentence or a good behaviour bond, but with conditions. Importantly, it meant no jail time. It was over. But Julian Assange didn't like giving in, as this final exchange shows. I order that the prisoner make reparation in the sum of $2,100 to the Commonwealth. I grant a stay of three months in relation to that repayment. The prisoner can come forward and sign this document. Assange replied... Your Honour, I believe the prosecution has made several misleading claims in terms of the charges. And therefore, I elect to continue this defence if Your Honour would so let me. No, you've pleaded guilty. The proceedings are over. You'd be well advised to come forward and sit down. Your Honour, I feel a great misjustice has been done and I would like to record the fact that you have been misled by the prosecution in terms of the charges and a number of other matters. Counsel, do you want to have a word with your client? Yes, come and have a word with him. 
In researching this case, I came across another piece of information which I think speaks to character. In the period between being arrested and being sentenced, Julian Assange went out of his way to assist police in a separate investigation by the Child Exploitation Unit. In 1993, he'd come across some information online which he reported to police. He then gave technical advice and support in two investigations dealing with the publishing of child pornography. It was noted in court documents that he received no payment or benefit, and indeed said he was pleased to be in a position to assist. For a local audience, these hacking cases were astounding. Home computers were little more than a decade old and most commonly used for word processing only. Not many of us realised at the time what had just happened. These innocent-looking home devices were being weaponized and politicised. I think the internet did two important things and the underground played an important thing in that. One, it allowed like-minded people who were otherwise outsiders to find each other and share both emotional support and intellectual stimulation and knowledge and bounce ideas off each other. And two, it was this leveler where you could have amplification of power by a very small number of people give them, you know, a microphone and voice. And stranger still, these new power brokers were usually young, skinny, long-haired guys who look like they don't get much sun. Full of confidence, some say arrogance, and with a heap of talent. The power balance was shifting. Even though no real damage was done, the hackers were putting it out there that they can now see what you're up to. There's a post in the International Subversive magazine that I keep coming back to. I'm not sure of the date or even the incident Assange is referring to, but it's instructive. I was arrested yesterday on a pathetic charge. One pig punched me after he worked out I had said he was a shallow, predictable moron. As a reflexive reaction, I went to hit him back and another four cops all drew their guns and pointed them at my body. I hate being powerless. Before we wrap up this episode, some background on documents we relied on to make it. In 2011, suppression orders were placed on two of these sentencing remarks, 15 years after the hearings. I don't know why, as no reason was given, just that I can't see them. After a couple of court hearings, we successfully got the suppression orders overturned. This meant we were able to accurately report what happened in each of these court cases, and also the details about the technical assistance Julian Assange gave to the Victorian Police investigation. As much as possible, we wanted to work from original documents for this series. When you're dealing with incidents 30 years ago, people's memories fade, or worse, are exaggerated. But it got even more difficult to find out what they did. I wanted the details about Operation Weather. So I made a freedom of information request to the Australian Federal Police for prosecution briefs, investigation briefs, etc. Firstly, I was told my request was too voluminous and complex. So I cut it back. Then I was asked to withdraw the request because of COVID restrictions and later for well-being reasons, whatever that means, but this came with an assurance that the search for documents would continue. Confused? Me too. And then I was told all the documents regarding Operation Weather had been destroyed. Hard to believe, considering we're talking about Julian Assange. So I put in a second request. The AFP came back and asked me to limit the scope, because the results would be, again, too voluminous and complex. After three and a half months of toing and froing, I received an email. 
your request for access is refused. And the kicker at the end, if you are unhappy with the way we have handled your FOI request, please let us know what we could have done better. I did manage to get the documents after I made another FOI request to the Commonwealth DPP. They hadn't destroyed their files. For access to what should be public documents in a country which espouses an open court system, it was disappointing to say the least. Not to mention complicated and expensive. If only there was a website where documents could be leaked anonymously and journalists could access them. Oh yeah, there is. And it started in Melbourne about 10 years later. You've probably heard of it. WikiLeaks. Despite breaking into institutions, rallying against the police and courts, Julian Assange remained faithful to the golden rules of Australian hacking, as laid out in Sulek Dreyfus's and Julian's book, Underground. Don't damage computer systems you break into, including crashing them. Don't change the information in those systems, except for altering logs to cover your tracks. And share information. Sulet writes, visiting someone's system was a bit like visiting a national park. Leave it as you find it. The main difference, of course, was that the gates of the national park were locked, and you first had to pick the lock to get in, walk around a bit, explore a bit, and then leave it as you found it. We were young, we hadn't done anything criminal game. We had done this for out of curiosity, challenge, and some activism. Anti-nuclear and other forms of activism, and we hadn't destroyed anything. These court cases were the end of this prolific hacking group, the International Subversives. From all accounts, Trax and Prime Suspect left the scene. I did manage to get in touch with one of them, but the reply was definitive. Sorry, I've decided not to be involved. Keep all that stuff in the past. Fair enough. And again, like the realm, these guys went quiet. No media, no books, no high-profile TV appearances like their US counterparts. I respect this desire for privacy, which is why we've decided to not use their real names. That is, except for Mendax, of course. He wasn't done yet. The night after being sentenced, Assange was posting on another online mailing list, the cypherpunk mailing list. One thing I admire about the cypherpunks is their digital literacy. The cypherpunk manifesto in the famous line says that cypherpunks write code. The cypherpunk movement had a profound impact on Julian Assange. Profound. Codes, man. If you want them, then this is your love tool. It took another 10 years before he launched WikiLeaks. And in that decade, a lot happened. That's next on Motherload. Motherload is written and researched by me, Greg Muller, a Rainierian Co. original production. Our executive producer is Lucy Kent, sound design and editing by Martin Peralta, consulting producer is Siobhan McHugh. Please review us too if you can. We love reading your feedback. And if we don't like it, we'll hack you. Kidding.